If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and I am so excited for our guest this week. This week, meet Rahul Vorha, the founder and CEO of Superhuman, the fastest email experience in the world. Prior to Superhuman, Rahul founded Reportive, the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. Reportive went on to be acquired by LinkedIn in 2012. In 2014, Rahul set out to launch Superhuman and is helping users get through their inbox twice as fast to achieve inbox zero. Demand for Superhuman is off the charts with a wait list currently of nearly 325,000 people. Let's welcome Rahul. Hi, Rahul. Well, thank you so much for having me. So Superhuman, how would you describe Superhuman to all of our listeners? I would say that Superhuman is the fastest email experience in the world. So most of our customers save many hours a week. They reply to their important emails sooner, and many of them see inbox zero for the first time in years, which, as you can imagine, is pretty life-changing. It is, by the way, it is pretty life-changing. And I, I feel at some point you need to launch something for text beyond that because that's becoming the next inbox zero. I want to rewind. So Superhuman is not your first startup. Let's start with your journey at Reportive, which you founded in 2010 and that then got acquired, as I said, two years later by LinkedIn. What was your vision there? And walk us through being a founder at one and then getting right back into the arena and doing it again. Well, the vision for Reportive was to help you be brilliant with people. We built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users, and it showed you everything about your contacts right inside your inbox. When people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they work, their recent tweets, links to their social profiles. If you had the kind of role that meant you were interacting a lot with people, whether that was marketing, hiring, sales, of course, being a founder or being a journalist, this was incredibly useful. And so, yes, we grew rapidly and less than two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. What was that journey like when were you so excited to actually have an exit on your horizon? Was it bittersweet when you look back and have to like really kind of reminisce about that experience? How do you feel? I think as with every other major life event, there are definitely pros and cons. In this case, I'm happy to share that the pros massively outweighed the cons. We had a, a great exit for founders and for investors. LinkedIn got to acquire strategically an incredibly valuable asset. We'd somehow managed to collect pretty much all of their daily active users into one place. For them to be able to own that was a big deal. And it really set the stage for everything that's to come, including Superhuman. I think one of the things, if I just go chronologically, that's so exciting about you was you finished your exit to LinkedIn in 2012. And in so many ways, report of, at least I see from afar, it led to your vision of Superhuman. In your own mind, and again, you then started Superhuman in 2014, 
how did you make that leap? Was superhuman just something that you could always see right in front of you? Did you think of them as very separate or did you think of them as actually almost running up the same ladder? You're right. They're very much part and parcel of the same idea. So at Reportive, the vision was to help you be brilliant with people. At Superhuman, that is obviously part of what we do, but it's a much wider, much more ambitious vision, which is to help you be brilliant at what you do. Now at Reportive, we had kickstarted a whole ecosystem of Gmail plugins, and at LinkedIn, we ran all of the company's email integrations. And during those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. So I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still not working properly offline. And on top of that, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also things like Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, Yesware, you name it, they had it. And each plugin took those problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So threading the needle, we decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that's blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less, an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox. And an experience, of course, that just worked offline so you could be productive anywhere. And an experience that had the best Gmail plugin functionality built in natively, and yet was still somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with that, we built Superhuman, and that's how Superhuman directly came from Reportive. Um, was there an aha moment where you were like, I've got to go build Superhuman? Or was it just this long, gradual development of seeing the Gmail issue that then you said, okay, I think we can do better? Or was there something that just clicked and you were like, I've got to go get back in the arena? You know, I can remember a lunchtime conversation I had with a VC buddy of mine. He'd come over to the LinkedIn Mountain View campus and sat me down for lunch and was like, hey, for your next company, you should do something that requires a lot of capital. And I laughed and I'm like, yeah, you're only just saying that so you can invest a lot of capital. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, kind of. But also as a serial entrepreneur in this space, people now will believe you. You will be able to raise arbitrary amounts of capital. You'll be able to hire a world-class team. You'll be able to take on bigger and harder challenges than you previously could. And he encouraged me to sort of think about how Elon Musk approaches his companies where, you know, really he, he seems to act as if no amount of capital is an impediment so they can take on anything in the world. And he was like, just think like that. And that was the time when it clicked where I realized that the thing that we're trying to do at Superhuman, I happened to be, through luck and being in the right place at the right time, one of the best place people in the world to do it. Because I was, I had the experience of reportive, I had the experience of running email integrations at LinkedIn, I could, to his point, raise arbitrary amounts of capital. I had all of the domain experience around email, as well as the domain experience around professionals, as well as the ability to hire the team and a compelling vision for a thing that I thought ought to exist. And when you add all of those filters, you're down to maybe one, two, or three people in the world. Uh, and that's what made it very clear to me that yes, it was time to get back into the founder's seat. Well, I love that. So if you think about it, 2014, you 
dive right back into the founder seat. You're starting superhuman and it, you were so, so thoughtful and meticulous about developing the product. You took your time akin to a friend of mine, Howie from Airtable, where he took years to go build the right infrastructure. As you think about how you were building this product, what was going through your mind? How long did you want it to take? When did you know it was right for you to put your head up and actually go begin to talk to people? Well, in the summer of 2015, we started, much like any other software company, by writing code. Uh, and you're right, I was actually working from 2014 before then, but it was on things other than code. I was doing wireframes and copywriting and so forth. And by the summer of 2016, we were still coding. And in the summer of 2017, we were still coding. And I felt this incredible, intense pressure to launch, both from the team and also from within myself. After all, Reportive had launched, scaled, and been acquired in less time. Here we were two years in, and we still had not launched. But deep down inside, I knew no matter how intensely I felt that pressure, a launch would go very badly. I did not believe we had product market fit. And although I knew it, I couldn't just say that to the team. These are super ambitious, hyper-intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and souls into the product, so I needed a plan. And so in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. In your mind, when did you decide it made sense to open the doors? Well, it came down to the ability to quantify product market fit. You know, I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts, and I came across Sean Ellis. Now, Sean ran early growth at Dropbox, logging in and Eventbrite. He actually coined the term growth hacker. Sean found a leading indicator of product market fit, one that is benchmarked and predictive. You simply ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and you measure the percent who answer very disappointed. After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed and the companies that grow easily almost always get more than 40%. In other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, you have initial product market fit. And it turns out that this metric is more objective than a feeling. It predicts success better than things like Net Promoter Score. And it's not only the best way to measure product market fit, we used it to develop our very own product market fit engine. And with this engine, we now have a methodology for systematically increasing product market fit, and the engine even automatically generates our roadmap for us. And that's a roadmap that's guaranteed to increase product market fit. About a year ago, in case folks are curious, I wrote up how the engine works on first round review. You absolutely should, and please do. So then walk us through, as you started to have to think about pricing, and you landed on $30 per month, how did you process landing on that number? And was it a long process of thinking it through? Was it clear? Um, for everybody out there that's listening and building their businesses and trying to get pricing right, how did you arrive on that number? I always say the same thing. Before you figure out pricing, you must figure out positioning. And we started with this article by Ariel Jackson. It's called Positioning Your Startup is Vital. Here's how to nail it. Go Google that right now. And Ariel advises using a formula like the following. 
It's a bit of a Mad Libs game for a target customer who has a need or an opportunity. Your product is in a category that has a key benefit and unlike competing alternatives, your product is different in this primary way. Now she gives an example in the article of Harley Davidson, which I'll just read out here to make it real. The only motorcycle manufacturer that makes big loud motorcycles for macho guys and macho wannabes, mostly in the United States, who want to join a gang of cowboys in an era of decreasing personal freedom. And so you can start to connect the dots here. The product name, of course, is Harley Davidson. The product is Big Loud Motorcycles, that's the category. They've very clearly articulated who the audience is and where they are and also what those people are thinking. They wanna be part of a tribe in a time where our personal freedoms feel increasingly under attack. Now we thought about this hard for Superhuman and we met up with Ariel, who by the way is awesome. She was the first product marketing manager on Gmail, so probably one of the best people in the world we could possibly talk to on this topic. Um, and in particular, the book, Positioning the Battle for Your Mind was very helpful. It's a uh, a marketing classic, everyone should read that if they're interested in the topic. And so we started to ask ourselves questions like, are we the Ford of email? Nope, that doesn't really fit. Are we the Mercedes of email? Maybe we're getting there, but not quite. Are we the Tesla of email? Well, now we're getting there. And in 2015, working with Ariel, we came up with this positioning. For founders, CEOs, and managers of high growth technology companies who feel like their work is mostly email, Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. It's what Gmail could be if it were made today instead of 12 years ago. And unlike Gmail, Superhuman is meticulously crafted so that everything happens in 100 milliseconds or less. And notice how the Target's definition was super, super tight. We've of course since expanded beyond that very tightly defined target audience. And when you hear this positioning, it's clear that Superhuman is a premium tool for a premium market. Now once you've got that nailed, you can then move on to pricing. And one of the best resources on this topic is a book called Monetizing Innovation by Madhavan Ramanujan. Now Madhavan covers a ton of ways to develop pricing. We used one of the easiest and fastest methods, which is the Van Westendorp price sensitivity meter. In late 2015, we asked 100 of our earliest users the following questions. There's only four of them, and this is why the methodology is so great. At what price would you consider Superhuman to be so expensive that you would not consider buying it? At what price would you consider Superhuman to be priced so cheaply that you would feel the quality couldn't be very good? At what price would you consider Superhuman to be starting to get expensive? So it's not out of the question. You'd have to give it some thought, but you still would buy it. And finally, at what price would you consider Superhuman to be a bargain, a great buy for the money? Now, most startups go after question number four, the bargain question. Why? Because they tend to be selling into a market that's growing or has only just come into existence and they're in land grab mode. Not so for Superhuman. Everyone uses Gmail or Outlook. Our market definitely exists and we're premiumly positioned. The price point that supports a premium position is the third question. When does it feel expensive, but you would still buy it anyway? And one can imagine that Tesla did that with the Model S. Now it turns out that the median answer for that third question was $30 per month. And that's how we picked our price. Now once you picked your price, the last thing to do is a quick 
gut check on market size. For example, if you've raised money, you need to grow into at least a billion dollar valuation. Can you do that? Now let's assume that at that point, our valuation is 10x our run rate, so our ARR is $100 million. For Superhuman, that would be 300,000 subscribers at $30 a month. And that's conservatively assuming no other ways to increase revenue per user, like new products are going up market. We simply asked ourselves, do we think that we can get to hundreds of thousands of subscribers for Superhuman? We answered emphatically yes. And so we went ahead with that price. Let's transition to you begin to open it up. It's invite only. You have a wait list of now nearly 300,000 people. Walk us through that strategy and how you feel about it today now that you've been able to see it all the way through the other side. Well, I think that marketing fundamentally boils down to the Paul Graham adage, build something people want. We have yet to spend a dollar on marketing, but people really want to get through their email faster. And so in a very real sense, superhuman markets itself. Recall that feeling you described of you heard we were available and, and now you feel the need to get it. And today we have 320,000 folks on our wait list. A lot of people think that this is some kind of marketing technique, but that is not actually true. We work around the clock to get through the wait list as fast as we can. What folks may not know is that for each new user, we do a live concierge onboarding. This is a 30-minute one-to-one video call with one of our wonderful onboarding specialists. And in those onboardings, we teach faster workflows to get to inbox zero, powerful shortcuts so you never have to touch the mouse. And if you're very far away from inbox zero, we wipe the slate clean so you're within a stone's throw of it. And that's ultimately why we have the waitlist. I want to ask you, as a serial entrepreneur, what do you feel like you learned from building Reportive that you now get to apply to Superhuman personally? Was it like a leadership quality or something that you actually had to learn at Reportive that now it allows you to go faster at Superhuman? I would say it's the ability to choose a strategy and then to stick with it. I received this advice back in the report of days, and uh, it didn't actually stick with me. So uh, I'll share it again now. Hopefully it will stick with other first-time founders, which is to choose a strategy and then pick with it. I remember being here in San Francisco in 2010, meeting as many founders and CEOs as I could, and I met up with James Lindenbaum, who at the time was the CEO of Heroku. And he sat down, very patiently listened to everything that we were doing, and he said, okay, you have about 18 months before you run out of money. You should decide very quickly whether you're going to try and grow your user base as fast as possible or whether you're going to try and grow your revenue as fast as possible and maybe perhaps get to some notion of profitability. And I said, yes, thank you, James. Very good advice. And what did I do, of course? Well, I began to vacillate. And some months we would focus on growing users, and some months we would focus on growing revenue. And the net result is we did neither of those things spectacularly. Now, we were very lucky to have built an asset that was of strategic value to LinkedIn. And so we were able to sell the company at a premium. But folks who know the story will know that we came within weeks of running out of money, and we would have struggled to raise more. If there were not an interested acquirer, that company may have actually not succeeded. And that is a lucky save that we had from that time. And at Superhuman, I apply that lesson very directly. We have a, a very clear strategy. Once we have it, we stick with it. We do, of course, 
reassess it on a regular basis, we will change things on a six-month or a one-yearly basis, but we're not going to vacillate on a monthly basis like we did previously. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. I want to switch gears into you. Did you always know if we go back to your childhood, you know, first, where did you grow up? And did you always know you were an entrepreneur? When did it finally click? I mean, and, and now you're a serial entrepreneur. So you are full blown an entrepreneur. This is your, this is your comfort zone. You are in your skin. Did you always know where did you grow up? And when did it dawn on you? When did that aha moment go off where you're like, I meant to build businesses? I am one of those people that knew from a very young age. I was always building things as a kid. Even when I was five or six years old, I would be doodling mazes and uh, the very old school equivalents of modern day role-playing games on paper. And then I would force my dad to play through them. When I was eight years old, I taught myself how to program so that I could make my own video games. At school, I then sold those games and sold other pieces of software that I'd made. And I remember thinking at age 15 that what I wanted to do was to start companies and grow them. I didn't know at that time it would be in technology, but I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I think part of the reasoning behind that was looking at my parents. Now, both of my parents, now they're retired. Uh, they're both doctors. They've done very well for themselves. And, and gave me and, and my sibling a, a wonderful education. But I could still see that they, in a sense, they felt trapped, trapped by the system that they were in. And they wouldn't have said that because they obviously loved being doctors. They otherwise would not have gone into that. But from the outside looking in, it felt like a weird system to be trapped in. Uh, and I wanted to do things on my own terms. And that was the initial motivation for being an entrepreneur. It certainly isn't the motivation today. And I think one of the most interesting questions to ask people who've known they wanted to be an entrepreneur for a long time is how does that motivation change over time? You know, so many people I've spoken to, for example, when they're kids or like teenagers are like, I want to get into it for the money, right? Like I want to be independently wealthy. And and, and God bless, that's a perfectly fine motivation if, if that's what it is for you. Uh, it's, it's not what it is for me. Today, I want to create beautiful things that make people smile. And that's really what gets me out of bed every day. You've recently announced the close of a $7 million angel fund. What do you look for in the founders that you invest in? What gets you excited when you see an entrepreneur? Great question. It's a combination of a few different things. Does the founder have an uncanny product sense? There's a, a certain class of founders who you would call, and I'm using air quotes here, product founders. They have the uncanny ability both to know what people want and also to help people realize that this is a thing that they want. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they are high charisma people. Now, why is that important? Well, as you know, that's important not just to raise funding, which is probably what most of our listeners are immediately thinking of, uh, but even more importantly than that, to recruit your team. 
Raising funding is a learned skill. I think most people can figure out how to do it with enough practice and enough mentorship. The thing that's even harder is building a world-class team over time. And that takes a certain amount of charisma. Uh, and there's, you know, charisma isn't a, uh, there's no one size fits all version of it. You can be charismatic and quiet, or you can be energetic and loud, and both can work. But there has to be a certain presence to the founder because they're going to have to do some crazy things. There is so much to get through in building a company. The, there are unfortunately many more downs than there are ups and you really have to want to succeed. It takes a crazy amount of perseverance. Uh, so what my partner in the fund, Todd and I look for is grit. When you are trying to see grit in a founder, Give me a flavor of how do you see that? I, I know you can look at somebody's resume. You can look at what they've accomplished. You can look at, did they do something at a you know superhuman level? No pun intended. But how do you actually, is there a question you like to ask to get to the heart of that? Uh, well, this is the, the $7 million, or in your case, several hundred million dollar question. Um, <laughs> hmm, how do you assess scripts? That, that's a really, really good question. Uh, I am by no means an, an expert on this. this. This would actually be a better question for our head of people who's fully versed in, in how you design interview questions. For, for me, it's, it's more of an intuitive thing. Uh, and I think I can get away with that because I'm not hiring in the fund for a role I don't understand. I'm hiring for a role I, I understand tremendously because I've done it many times. There are a few telltale signs. Is the person able to recount times when and again, this is another Paul Graham quote, when they've hacked the system. I believe that's actually a question on the Wysig application form. That displays a certain level of grit. Can the person talk about times, not just when they failed, we've all failed, that's quite boring, but when they've recovered from failure and what did they learn and how did they prevent that kind of failure going forwards? Can the person recount a time when they failed that they rallied a team or the people around them? Are they able to explain how they, how, how maybe they were on the verge of giving up, but they just decided not to, and somehow they found it within themselves to convince everybody else not to give up as well? You're a serial entrepreneur. You've clearly learned what it takes to keep you, again, you've seen the highs, lows, the, you know, you even said a report of there were really stressful times of are we going to actually survive and stay? Superhuman's been the rocket ship that's been probably from the external world a lot easier, but I'm sure on the inside you've had to, you know, surmount a lot of summits. What makes you tick? What have you figured out keeps you on the rails? Is it sleep? Is it exercise? Is it meditation? Is it something else? Is it a habit? But what keeps you sane? Oh boy, it's it's all of those things and then some. Uh, those who know me well will know that uh, I actually suffer from sleep apnea, and uh, initially that was that was quite difficult to get over the you know the idea of, of having to wear a Darth Vader-esque machine to bed at night that actually does sound a little bit like Darth Vader every time I'm going to bed. Uh, I've, I've got over that now. It's kind of a, a joke in our house. But yeah, if, if I don't get eight hours of, of assisted sleep, then I, I become rather a grumpy individual. And so I have to ensure that that is happening. Uh, yes, exercise. I take the, the health of my body extremely seriously. So, uh, so much so that in many aspects of my life, I work with coaches. I've worked with nutritionists, physical trainers, executive coaches, and I just started working with a meditation coach. I've had many false starts at trying to adopt a meditation practice. I tried all the apps. I just couldn't get them to stick. I didn't feel any benefit. 
And then I began to ask around my peer group of CEO friends, and they unanimously, unanimously actually uh, mentioned this, this one individual, Laurent Valasek, um, who is a, who was a three-time tech CEO turned transcendental meditation coach, and so had exactly the kind of background I was looking for, uh, and have been intensively working with him for a while now. So I now meditate twice a day, and I'm really excited to share that the results are fairly profound. You know, initially I felt a increase in happiness. That sensation for me has faded over time, which uh, I understand is normal as your body adjusts to its new normal. But the thing that has persisted and which is super powerful as a founder and as a CEO is my ability to focus, stay attentive, work longer and harder and be more creative have all, I think, significantly increased. Uh, and so I'm excited to, to continue this. And from speaking to people who've specifically practiced TM, Transcendental Meditation, um, over a long period of time. Uh, it's one of the most effective forms of meditation specifically for those, those areas, focus, memory, and creativity and energy. Okay, last two questions of the entire interview. I wanna know your coolest pinch me moment so far at Superhuman, where you had a moment where you actually stepped back and you said, wow, I can't believe that just happened. What was it? I would have to say waking up to see a full feature article of Superhuman on the front page of the New York Times and later on that same week being written up in The Economist. I think if you told me a few years ago we'd be there, I would have had a very hard time believing you. I think that is a pretty rad pinch me moment. I love it. I'm like, I fully appreciate that. I want you to pay it forward, especially since you see so many amazing startups. Other than Superhuman, what's one startup, one new product, something that you're really jazzed about, you think is pretty amazing? What is it? Right now, I would call out Viable Fit. What they are doing is nothing short of amazing. They've taken the whole product market fit engine that we developed at Superhuman and productized it. Now, I know a lot of people have read that first round article. If you haven't, please go read it. It is still, even after reading it, a very manual process. There's a lot of things to implement. And what they have done is taken all the sticks and the glue, you know, the type forms and the surveys and everything, and put it into one product. Our product market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed. The lack of it is the number one reason why startups fail. If you're a founder trying to find product market fit, then check out Viable Fit. That's viable.fit. Rahul, thank you. This has truly been just wonderful. Everybody out there, if you're not already using Superhuman or on the wait list for Superhuman Run, um, thank you so much for joining us today. And you can catch us next week on the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Alexa.